Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 216th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jason Zwei. Jason's a financial journalist who wrote one of the first books on behavioral finance and neuroeconomics and writes the Intelligent Investor column for the Wall Street Journal. What's unique about Jason, though, is his perspective on the financial services industry, having covered it for nearly 25 years, and why he sees the future value proposition of financial advice as being less of an expert and more about the advisor as curator who identifies the best solutions and systems for clients to get the answers they need. In this episode, we talk in depth about the parallels between the fiduciary ethics of financial journalism and financial planning, the difficulties that consumers face in trying to determine who is a credible journalist or credible financial planning expert, and why being able to say, I don't know, in response to a client's question can actually be viewed as a litmus test for who is really a true expert in the needs of their clients. We also talk about the evolving value proposition of financial advisors themselves, the behavioral value that advisors can add to their clients beyond just trying to get higher returns, why even the hand-holding value proposition of helping clients manage their behavior could eventually be replaced by technology, and Jason views on why the AUM model has been so stubbornly persistent despite decades of naysayers calling for its demise. And be certain to listen to the end where Jason shares why he doesn't believe financial planning is yet a true profession and what it would take to get there, why he's written a number of sharp investigative articles about financial advisors and the CFP board in particular over the past decade, and his guidance about where new financial advisors should focus if they want to be successful in the decades to come. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jason Zweig. Welcome, Jason Zweig, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Great to be with you, Michael. I'm really excited about today's episode. You are, I, I think, in, in 200 plus episodes that we've done, the the first that has come from the world of financial journalism. I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with your intelligent investor columns in the Wall Street Journal or the book you've done, Your Money and Your Brain, which was, to me, really kind of one of the first books that dove into I guess what we now call behavioral finance and kind of the brain science of investing, although I'm not even sure we were calling it that then. You've done some really big stories on even our industry, and including from time to time calling out the CFP board on some of their practices. And so I, I know you have a really, I think, unique perspective on the world of financial advisors and on the industry, although I feel like also a little bit of a kindred spirit in some way. You know, I... I I remember reading a few years ago, you'd won a, a Loeb Award, which is one of the, for you know folks not listening, one of the really big awards in financial journalism and professional journalism, and, and had written this column where you had made the comment of how you define your job and what you do. And you had said something, the effect of, my job is to write the exact same thing 50 times a year in a way that no one ever realizes I'm just saying the same thing over and over again. Because good advice is good advice and doesn't really change that much. We just kind of adapt it to the current environment, but the point's usually the same. And 
to me, it just, it really resonated with me. I feel like that's a lot of what we go through as advisors as well. Good advice is good advice and doesn't change that much, but we're always trying to adapt it to current times and current circumstances and figure out what the right message is that will sink in and change a few minds, hopefully for the better. And so I see a lot of interesting parallels in what you do in financial journalism to what we do as financial advisors, in addition to the fact that, I don't know, maybe we we crisscross each other on opposite sides of the table sometimes as well. Yeah, that's a great intro, Michael. Thank you. And, you know, I guess I would make a couple of very quick points. One is that a large part of my job is to tell people what they don't want to hear. And of course, the corollary to that is if you're telling people something they don't want to hear, it's probably something they need to know. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if they don't want to hear it and they need to know it, a large part of the success in that sort of communication is figuring out how to frame it so people don't just spit it out. So this is part science and it's largely art. And I think people in any field spend far too much time sort of patting themselves on the back over the science of it and not enough time admitting that really it's an art, it's an art form. So that's the first thought. And then I guess the second thought is journalism and financial advice delivered by RIAs do have something in common, which is, or they can, which is, I sort of also think of myself as a fiduciary, although not in a formal sense, but I feel that anybody who writes about investing and personal finance for a living has to take the approach that I would never recommend something to my readers that I wouldn't do myself and that, you know, it's very important to be skeptical and independent and do enormous amounts of due diligence to think about risk and not just return and to try to present all that in a responsible way. And of course, I won't always succeed, but I hope it's not for a lack of trying when I fail. I love that idea and framing that I, I think, you know, there's a, well, I, I suppose both financial journalism and financial advice has its share of people who aspire to higher standards and shall we just say those who do not. <laughs> but amongst those who do, I think you have an interesting point that there is, there's something about the, the business and, and ethics of, of journalism at its best that in a lot of ways mirrors the best of of conduct standards amongst financial advice and that that kind of fiduciary ethos and and as you put it the 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 skepticism the due diligence the independence which are are really just other ways of talking about kind of a, a duty of loyalty to those that you serve and a duty of care that what you're telling them is you know thorough and accurate and well researched and and the appropriate thing to say to them and then the challenge that we all have of figuring out how do you actually say it in a way that people will will actually respond to it and use it and adopt it and implement it and not just hear it and then move on with their days and their lives without without moving forward with the change that you were trying to bring about. Yeah, exactly. So it, as you look at it, I, I am fascinated with just the idea of 
I think as you put it, the 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 art form in in how we deliver the message. You know, you've been doing this for many years now. You know, I think a lot of folks know you from your work at the Wall Street Journal, but before that, you were at Money Magazine and and have been doing this for for a number of years now. So, I think how do you think about I guess the the art form of how to how to deliver the message? Like, what have you found works or doesn't work when you're trying to figure out how do we communicate this stuff to investors in a way that they'll actually act on it? Well, I wish it were easy and, you know, I could sort of write it all down on, you know, an index card or five bullet points. It's not. I think it's very situational. I think it varies on what the message is, who the receiver is, who the person sending the message is. But I would love the words, I don't know, to become sort of a litmus test of what it means to be a professional. What I can tell you is that one of my great good fortunes in working for the Wall Street Journal is I can send an email to almost anyone or call almost anyone and they'll pick up the phone, they'll answer the email. And so I've been blessed. I've talked with some of the smartest and wisest people in the world, not just in finance, but in many other fields. And and I've come up with a very simple definition of expertise. I think the best working definition, the best operational definition of what it means to be an expert is the willingness to say, I don't know. I think the tendency among professionals in many fields is to avoid saying, I don't know, because it's it sounds frightening, but I think it sounds more frightening to the person saying it than it does to the person hearing it. I think one of the reasons we may be seeing such an intense populist backlash against expertise, and over the past year, I think we can all agree, it has gone from being sort of a disturbing trend in society to a deadly trend. I mean, many thousands of people are dead because they did not listen to experts who gave them the best available public health advice on how to stay safe during a pandemic. And I think one of the reasons people have become contemptuous of experts is because not enough true experts and many pseudo experts were too reluctant to say, I don't know. And I think if you approach every problem from the start from a position of ignorance and then present what you've learned after you've learned it and tested whether your knowledge is accurate, I think that conveys a sense to people that you deserve, you at least deserve a hearing and with luck, you deserve their trust. I find that interesting framing. You know, there, I think there's certainly a challenge, I'll I'll say from the advisor's end that, yeah, I think we do feel a pressure, you know, when, when a client asks us a question and is paying us money for answers, 
that it feels like there's a lot of pressure to have the right answer saying, saying, I don't know, often, I think for some advisors feels akin to saying, I don't know the answers. Like, I, I don't know how to earn the money that you're paying me because you pay me as an expert for answers and advice. And I'm yeah. telling you, I don't know. It's like, why, mm-hmm. are you, why are you paying me? So there, there is, I think, a very implicit and, and often high pressure environment on us to to feel like we have to have an answer, say an answer. Right. And and let me interject, Michael. I appreciate that, you know, I've never worn that hat and I've never walked in those shoes. So maybe there's an irony in my saying, I think I know what I would do. Maybe I should say I don't know how to handle that situation. <laughs> but but I do have but I do have a thought on it. And here's an example. And I have some I have sometimes proposed this to advisors who have said that they would try it in their practice. And I haven't actually followed up with any of them on it to see whether it worked. But I have suggested that in like a year-end portfolio review with a client, and I think it would work well if it were on a piece of paper and we were back to the world of face-to-face meetings, but there's no reason why you couldn't do it, you know, by email or on your website. I would ask people, clients, a set of really simple prediction questions. I would say today the Dow Jones, which is the only index anybody knows, is at X thousand. What do you think its value will be on December 31st? Then you'd say, you know, the 10-year U.S. Treasury has a yield of Y percent today, where do you think that yield will be at the end of the year? And in inflation, the oil price, gold price, Bitcoin, you know, a couple other things that would be common variables that they might expect you to be able to predict, you would ask them to fill that out and you can tell them it's okay if you don't have an answer, but please put an answer everywhere you think you're comfortable making one. And I'm going to fill out the same form myself, and then we will swap. And while they were filling out their form, I would fill out mine, but my pen would never touch the paper, and I would leave every answer blank. And then we would switch, and I would look at their answers, but they would be staring at my paper, and they would say, you didn't make any predictions And I would say that's because I don't know the answer. And my job is to construct an investment portfolio for you and provide financial advice to you that should help you prosper irrespective of what happens to any of these indexes Mm -hmm. or assets. And I don't know if that would work, but it would be interesting to try. Interesting. I... I strongly suspect someone here is listening is is going to try this so uh, if you have an interesting experience feel free to send a message and let us know i'm i'm very curious to hear how it plays out i'm struck by that as i guess both a a thought experiment and literally something to to try with clients you know on the on the one hand i i do think it's a powerful way to to not just illustrate the I don't know part, right? I don't I don't know what the Dow is going to be at the end of the year or the or the yield on the treasury or the price of gold or Bitcoin or oil or the rest. But 
to me, you you followed it up, Jason, with something really interesting, which is this idea that, but my job is to construct a portfolio and give you advice where you'll prosper irrespective of what happens to any of those things. That, you know, it's it's sort of a like jujitsu shift in framing to mm-hmm. say, yeah, I don't know the answer to that stuff, but that's not actually the part that you're paying me for. The yeah. part you're paying me for is actually to help deal with the fact that I don't know that stuff more than anybody else because these are unknowable things. Right. And, you know, the point I would interject here is to offer a criticism that sort of comes out of my experience in the conversation I've had with, you know, hundreds of advisors over the years. I think there's a couple of issues. One is a lot of advisors think they do know the answer to those questions and actually spend much of their working day acting on their own predictions, which is fine if you're good at it. But if you're really good at it, you probably shouldn't be running an RIA. You should be running like a an offshore hedge fund. No, I would say like if you're that good at it, two plus 20 is a lot more lucrative than one. Right. Than 1% ongoing. Right. And, and actually to take it to the nth degree, if you're that good at it, you really should just launch a either an investing newsletter or like an SMA model portfolio because you have zero, you have a business with zero costs and like an infinite ROI. And, you know, I I don't think a lot of people are likely to do that, which gets back to, I think, what we were saying earlier, which is, you know, it's important to be intellectually consistent. You should think through the implications of your own behavior. Of course, advisors are behavioral coaches to their clients, and that's a vitally important function. But that's a behavioral inconsistency in your own practice. I mean, if you're holding yourself out as having a competency in something, but there's a bit of a logical problem in that, I mean, if you really were competent at forecasting markets, then you wouldn't be an RIA. You would be a market forecaster. And you should think that through and maybe say to yourself, gee, am I earning my fees and holding myself out as doing something that it might be good marketing, but I'm not actually that good at? I mean, if that's the decision you want to make, that's fine. But I think if you're a fiduciary in your heart, as well as by title, then that could be a little problematic. So help me understand, though, this you know, aspect that you said, like the words, I don't know, become one of your litmus tests for someone being a professional. Because obviously, there's a flip side of this as well, which is the, like, the people who say, I don't know, because they just really have no expertise and don't don't know. What's the difference between an expert, I don't know, and a, I don't know, I don't know, because I don't know much about stuff. What's the distinction for us if we're trying to be experts but are saying this, or what's even the distinction for consumers between the expert version of the, I don't know, and the, yeah, that person just really doesn't know anything. You probably shouldn't pay them for advice. What's the difference between the good, I don't know, and the runaway, I don't know. So the good, I don't know, It tends to be somebody who is highly specialized, somebody who, I mean, to throw a few examples out, I mean, maybe, maybe 
maybe somebody runs an RIA that has, you know, really deep expertise in estate planning. So, you know, if I'm going to ask about trusts and I get an I don't know, then as the client, I should be very worried because somebody who who specializes in estate planning darn sure should know everything relevant about trusts. But if I'm asking my specialist in estate planning, who also happens to generalize in financial planning as a whole, a question about should I lease this car or buy it or, you know, which mortgage broker should I use? I don't know, but I'll get back to you is a really good answer under those circumstances. When I'm interviewing scientists, they will very quickly, like right up front, cut off a lot of questions and just say, I, I don't know. I'm an expert in fish behavior, and you're asking me about mammal behavior, and I don't know anything about mammals. I just know about fish. But if I then ask a question about fish and the same person says, I don't know, then then we have a problem. So it sounds to me like a, a, a piece of it is is being able to say, I don't know about something. Well, being able to say, I don't know about anything is clearly not good. Being able to say, I don't know about something because I'm really specialized in this other thing is simply a way of redirecting to say, yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but let me remind you how expert I am at the thing that I'm expert mm-hmm. at. Like mm-hmm. it becomes a, that becomes part of the past, the positive, right? We, maybe we, I was going to say respect. I don't know if that's the right word, but like we, we respect specialists more that know the limits of their specialization because it sort of implies they really, really do know their area of expertise because they are, you know, consciously competent there and conscious of their incompetence elsewhere. And that's partially kind of reaffirming to say, well, they must really know their stuff because they clearly focus there since they're not trying to do everything. They're just focusing there. Right. So maybe this is the easiest way to answer the question. It's very easy for individuals and members of the general public who don't know a lot about a field, which is why they're getting the advice in the first place to assume that somebody who has general knowledge also has specific expertise. And the great Tamar Frankel, who's sort of the you know modern founder of fiduciary law in the United States, talks constantly about the fact that to be a fiduciary literally means that another person has entrusted judgment to you. And the reason they do that is because they are in an inferior position of knowledge. They are trusting you to know what they don't know. And because of that, they one of the things they don't know is the right questions to ask. And part of the right questions to ask are, how can I tell whether you're an expert or not? And the fact that, you know, we've seen people who whose credentials might superficially indicate that they have expertise, giving bad advice to millions of people that may well have cost some people their lives with public impunity should tell us how important it is to like communicate that stuff clearly. There is an interesting parallel to this to me in 
in our world of of advisors that so on the one end i i think by and large we are moving more in the direction of of expertise of and specialization yeah yeah of 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 you know of knowing enough to actually being able to say yes i have the expertise that you can entrust judgment to me because again when i look at it at just a general level like our our industry standards of what it takes to write financial advisor on your business card is kind of embarrassingly low. Like it's a high school diploma and a three hour regulatory exam and, and the diploma is technically optional. Like, yeah, it's you really just need a series exam. And probably the only thing that's lower is uh, is, you know, what it takes to become a journalist. Well, <laughs> we got you one up there at least. Yeah. So we like we have this incredibly low bar that I think a lot of the people that aspire to move us towards a profession are trying to lift with things like CFP certification and and what I call post-CFP designations, like the even more specialized ones that people are now starting to add after their CFP certification to get even deeper and more specialized, you know, RACP and RMA and CPWA and a lot of those. But it strikes me at the same time, I, I feel like the particular point that we're at right now is frankly particularly not conducive to your being willing to say I don't know when I don't know framework because a lot of where I feel like the the financial planning profession is moving itself right now is something the effect of like I have the CFP designation I have covered it was, you know, 81 topics or however many it is on the CFP boards topic list this provides me an ability to give broad comprehensive advice like a, a lot of firms literally market themselves as like why they're distinct is they're more comprehensive or than anybody else's comprehensive mm -hmm. plan. Mm -hmm. And it is frankly the antithesis in many ways to me of, of what you were talking about that when our differentiation is I know more about everything and anything related to finances than anyone else, we, we leave ourselves no room to say, I don't know. Like we've essentially created the expectation, the client's mind of, I'm going to know everything about everything because I'm the most comprehensive of the comprehensive financial planners. And I guess I, even in hearing this discussion, I'm like, we're like, are we digging our own grave in, in, well, in this particular movement towards comprehensive planning? Right. So I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I think there's, there's a, there's a lot to that. I guess, you know, I come at it as a product of my own, career experience. I mean, although I'm the personal finance columnist at the Wall Street Journal, I write more about investing than anything else, including financial planning. And over the years, you know, although I by no means have all the answers, I've certainly heard most of the questions. And I've been frustrated in, you know, hundreds of conversations I've had with advisors over the past two or three decades at the almost inbred tendency of a lot of advisors, particularly those who hang out a shingle that says, you know, capital management or asset management, advisors who think of themselves as portfolio managers above all, they have, I think, a really bad and naive tendency to think that they are incredibly good professional portfolio managers. And, you know, 80% of the, 
of Wall Street's best and brightest are outperformed by the S&P 500 year in and year out. And they have massive quantitative and qualitative resources that, you know, small independent RIAs don't have and frankly never will have. You're competing on a playing field that is completely skewed and you should not have any illusions that you have superior skill in this area. The industry needs a lot more humility about its portfolio management abilities. I think when it comes to financial advice, RIAs are increasingly doing a great job and performing an unquestionably powerful public service. But to the extent that you think of yourself as a portfolio manager rather than as a financial advisor, you really should be asking whether you're kidding yourself. Or, or as you said, alternatively, if, if you're that good, the sort of strange irony that 1% AUM fees is not actually the best way to monetize your expertise if you're, if you're really actually that that's right. And, and, and the corollary to that, Michael, is if you were that good, you wouldn't be an RIA. The mere fact that you still are one should tell you that you're not that good at what you're holding yourself out as doing. Because if you were that good, you would be running an offshore hedge fund or publishing a newsletter with an infinite ROI. You wouldn't be, you know, a small independent shop with, you know, a few hundred million dollars in assets. You have to ask yourself whether what you're doing really makes sense. There's another element to this, though, which is that being a professional portfolio manager who outperforms the benchmark is one of the most competitive and difficult jobs on earth. The odds are basically stacked four or five to one against you before you even start. However, there's a job that's harder. The job that's harder is being a professional manager of professional portfolio managers. I mean, if you are an RIA who claims to be able to pick fund managers that will outperform in the future, you're choosing a task that's much more difficult than being one of those portfolio managers because they just have to find securities that will outperform. You have to find them. You have to somehow make sure they don't get hit by a bus. Their heads don't swell. Their assets don't get so big that they can't outperform. They don't get caught up in some scandal. It's incredibly difficult and i'm i just remain baffled after decades of covering the industry why so many people you know build their practice around what i mean i'm sorry in most cases is a, is actually a false proposition that your track record itself is likely to prove false there are people who can do it but if roughly 80% of professional portfolio managers fail. What percentage of managers of professional 
portfolio managers fail. By definition, it's a lot higher than 80%. Right. So if I go back to your earlier point, though, right, we're, we're doing the piece of paper exercise, put your predictions at the end of the year, you're going to fill out yours, mine's going to be blank, because my job is to construct a portfolio and give you advice that will help you prosper irrespective of what happens to any of these. Like, what is that portfolio management value proposition that the advisor is bringing to the table? Like, you kind of set up, there, there is something that we're doing in constructing a portfolio and giving advice that's supposed to still help in that environment. So what do you envision that value proposition is that we are supposed to be doing that, that does bring value to the table? Well, I think there's, I think there's a zillion things, right? I mean, you know, what's timely. I mean, I hope you won't mind if I tell our audience what day it is while we're actually talking as opposed to when this will air. I mean, we're talking on January 29th. It's the end of a week when trading in individual stocks, often by people who've never traded a stock before in their lives, has seized the attention of pretty much the entire world as GameStop and all these other insane, what used to be small cap stocks left for dead have gone crazy. I mean, one of the first things you can do is you can help people understand the difference between investing and speculating. You can coach them to seg, you know, if they must trade, and perhaps they must because it's fun and they want the bragging rights and they haven't yet gotten burned, then at the very least, you have to coach them on how to segregate that and put it in some kind of mad money account where it won't infect the rest of their portfolio. And that's important not just for them, but for you, because if you don't get them to agree to handcuff themselves, they could end up putting so much of their money into some wildly risky thing that in the short term outperforms so much that they'll end up firing you because they think they won't need you. And then when it all comes crashing down, you know, they might not even have enough money left for them to be worth a client for you. So that's the first and I think the easiest like the really low hanging fruit. The other thing is you, you're going to you're going to advise them on basic principles of diversification and asset allocation of you know what it really means to be a buy and hold investor, the importance of rebalancing, designing a decumulation program, even just informing them that they need that 20 or 30 years down the road. You know, it's it's all the things that good advisors do every single day. Those things are are incredibly important. I suppose that raises the the natural extension question to that, which is, does that mean you see the the fee models and the compensation for models changing and turning into something different? I hope so. So not not a fan of the one percent. No, and and I haven't been for a long time. And as you know, Michael, I mean, of course, nothing makes people angrier than suggesting that maybe the way they're compensated isn't optimal. And you know, my objection, my objection to AUM fees, I think, is often misunderstood by people who you know, yell at me after, after I write about it. My objection is not that 
this sort of standard 1% AUM fee is ridiculously high, even though I frankly think it is too high. My objection is that it's an AUM fee. That's what bothers me. Financial advisors are providing a service. Part of what it means to be a professional is to be compensated on a fee-for-service basis. That's how accountants get paid. That's how lawyers get paid. It's more or less how doctors get paid or overpaid. And, you know, we can, we can all quibble about how expensive those services are and how they all need to be disintermediated, which some of them already are being. But part of what it means to be a professional is you're performing a service and you get compensated for the service you're providing. And if you claim to be providing financial advice, then you should be getting paid to provide financial advice. And portfolio management is not advice for the most part. And it's also unfair because a $10 million client with a basket of five index funds who rebalances once a year should not be paying the same million dollars as, you know, somebody with less money or more money who demands more service or more customized service. I think to a thinking client, it's really difficult to understand why flat AUM fees make sense. And not just in the in the fairness sense, but just what does it incentivize? You know, I'm paying for the thing that is a commodity, but I'm getting the valuable stuff for free. I'm sorry, that's idiotic. And the fact that the industry sticks to it is bizarre and I believe unsustainable. But in your view, we are still separating out like the fee may or may not still add up to be the same thing. You just literally don't like the, the, the mechanism of determining fees by this means, right? Like we can sort of separate, right. separate yes, out. Yes, exactly. There's, there's charging 1% on a million dollars and there's just saying my fee is $10,000. Yes, exactly. If I ask you to do, you know, 15 things for me or five things for me or to spend 23 hours working for me and that adds up to $10,000 and I have a million dollars, I'm fine with that because I'm getting an itemized bill. And I can see what I'm paying and I'm getting what I paid for. But if you're charging me 1% on AUM and giving me advice on the side, I'm not getting what I paid for because I paid for asset management, but I'm getting advice. And there's another problem with it, which is what you do is you, you train the public to believe that Portfolio management, which is such a commodity product that, you know, you can get it from a robo-advisor for, you know, a few basis points, is somehow worth 100 basis points a year when it's not only a commodity product, but it's not very valuable. I mean, no one person does it that much better than anybody else. That's a definition of a commodity product. So why should I pay a premium price for that? 
Meanwhile, the financial advice, which really is valuable, which ought to be customized and individualized and time intensive, you're giving it to me for free and you're signaling to me that you're giving it to me for free. So that trains me as the client to think that portfolio management is hard and expensive and that financial advice should be easy and cheap. And that just makes no sense. I'm curious then from your perspective, like why don't you think the that other fee models have have taken off even further? You know, you and I both know folks like Cheryl Garrett at Garrett Planning Network that has, you know, pounded the table around hourly fee models for upwards of 20 years and, and made a wonderful network of advisors that do this hourly model. But yep. you know, while they had some success and there are a number of Garrett advisors, like we measure the number of Garrett advisors in the hundreds and we measure the number of financial advisors in the hundreds of thousands. Yep. Even after 20 years of having a network established for this, and obviously, you know, the principle of charging by the hours been around for a lot longer than that. Why is AUM so persistent as a model if it's so misaligned as a model? Well, I think there's a whole bunch of explanations. The first is what what I was just emphasizing, which is the public has been trained for decades to think that it, financial advice is the giveaway product and that portfolio management is like the secret sauce that, you know, our proprietary you know, computer model says we should do X, Y, and Z. And so we have to charge you 100 basis points. So from a marketing point of view, the audience is not really receptive. The other thing is there's historical momentum. I mean, the baby boomer generation, which of course still, you know, commands most of the assets, you know, grew up in a world where everything about financial services was a lot more expensive. Except the advice, which was the free kicker because yes, exactly. was a lot Yes, exactly. But, you know, when I first started invest- investing in, I'm dating myself, in the late 1970s, I mean, a small individual investor, as I certainly was in high school, you know, could easily pay 4 or 5% of principal value to make a stock trade. You know, a mutual fund had an 8% load. You might pay an 8% load to reinvest your dividend on a mutual fund. You know, annual expense ratios could be 2%. So for people who come from that world and especially who aren't particularly tech savvy and aren't up on the competitive forces that are sweeping the landscape, you know, 1% might not sound so unreasonable. And then the other thing is 1% for 20 or 30 years has been embedded in high equity returns. And, you know, 1% is is roughly, I mean, it's a rounding error in a 10 or 15% equity return. People don't even feel it. So I think it's all of those factors. And I think also it, there is a component of sticker shock. You know, if the 1% is basically debited against your portfolio return, the human mind processes that not as a loss, but as a foregone gain, which is much less painful. Whereas if if it 
showed up on a ticket or you had to write a check or it was debited as a line item in a dollar amount on your account statement, people would really feel it. So, you know, the whole like electronic custodial revolution that was led by, you know, Schwab and Fidelity and Pershing and the like, the convenience that that has provided to RIAs has also, I guess, provided some cover for protecting the point, as I'm I'm told some people (laughs) call maintaining a 100 basis point fee. There was a fascinating study, though, that had come out. I I remember seeing this, it was probably two or three years ago now, from from an economist that had dug through like 150-odd years of basically what it takes to turn a dollar of savings into a dollar of investment, sort of like the the financial services industry's aggregate vig mm-hmm. <laughs> as the house for turning savings into investment. And and the fascinating thing of it is like the all-in aggregate costs of the financial system had basically sat between 1.5% and 2% for like 150 years up straight through the 20 teens. I forget when they ran their numbers through. It was like 2015 or 2016 or something. And and so through the online brokerage era and the discount brokerage era and and the stock trading and I guess we're not quite back to trading stocks under the buttonwood tree, but you know we're we're closer to that than we are today by the being the time horizon and and just the all-in cost was amazingly stubbornly persistent that you know we do it arguably more and better and accomplish more and do it with more scale but you know in essence the the industry has spent 150 years figuring out how to how to do more to protect their point than actually bringing the point down like it never breached below 1 i don't even think it breached below 1.2 yes and i think this is a, to make a bad pun this is a really important point michael i mean so I first became the mutual funds editor at Forbes in 1995. And if you combine like the weighted average sales load and the weighted average expense ratio of the typical U.S. stock fund, then I'm going to guess it was probably about two and a half percent. Today, you can buy a total stock market index fund with no commission for three basis points. So that's basically an almost exactly a 99% decline in the cost of owning U.S. stocks. Yet, oddly enough, the financial services sector is not smaller. <laughs> yes. But here's, here's the thing. If you could find a a fee-only financial advisor in 1995, and of course you could, there were a lot fewer of them, but they were out there, you probably would have paid roughly 100 basis points in annual AUM fees. And today, it's probably somewhat less, am I right? But it's not a lot less. It's not not 99% less. Yeah, slightly lower. I think if you look at a lot of the industry benchmarking studies that just look at aggregate revenue yield, which is just, you know, take all the fees that advisors charge and divide by all the AUM they have in the aggregate, which captures 
the break points and the fee discounts and like all the other stuff that we do, you typically come up with a number between about 70 and 75 basis points. Right. Is what I see in most of those studies. Right. So at the same time that the cost of being an equity investor has come down 99%, the cost of getting financial advice has maybe come down 25%. That's not sustainable. Does that mean you think advice fees sort of inevitably collapse further or- They have to. Or that we do some version of what, you know, the economist research was, which was, we'll just end out inventing a new value proposition to to protect the point, which I, I feel like is sort of what's happening right or wrong in, in real time as we've gone from, you know, you hire me to put on the blinders and manage your pot of money to, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we, we'll we take care of your money. But let me tell you about our comprehensive financial planning. Right. I think it's going to be both. So I think in order to justify the fee, advisors are going to have to do a lot more for their clients. You know, they're going to have to add a lot of technology. They're going to have to create partnerships with other service providers and, you know, become a lot more creative and innovative and broader in the services they provide. But the fee is going to have to come down also because there's been massive deflation in the cost of professional services across the global economy for decades. And it's driven by technology and Financial advice is, you know, is a highly, I was about to say technical, I can't say it. It's a high, <laughs> it's a, it's a field that is highly conducive to improvements in technology. And as a result, it will be improved by technology and the cost is going to need to come down or people won't want financial advice or they'll get it from machines instead of from people. So what are the things that you think hold on to this value proposition in the future? Because you know you had described earlier at least some of the you know where's the value we add in the portfolio right now, and you know, it was what it really means to buy and hold, and the value of rebalancing and principles of diversification, asset allocation, and certainly agree there there's value to those. Although in the context you're framing it, I feel like those are sort of the, those are the most commoditizable parts of mm-hmm. portfolios and, and and arguably literally the parts that robo-advisors have tried to commoditize. So what are we left with as advisors or what are the what are the new and broader services that that you would hope or expect to see the advising world go into in the future that that substantiates the value? Well I, I to be honest, I think a lot of it is going to be curatorial. I think, you know, yes, you could do the the hard work of, you know, modeling when when is the optimal time for your clients to start taking Social Security, or you could identify the publicly available algorithms that do the best job of calculating that. And you know, being a good curator of where the best technology is, is, is just wildly beyond your client's capability. You know, that's something they, they probably wouldn't be able to do if they tried, but advisors who have deep expertise in a field should be able to do that. I mean, I'm a firm believer that complex 
questions are best solved mostly by algorithms with some human input. And so if somebody out there, you know, has a really outstanding software package for calculating optimal social security timing, then I would have no shame in just using that and telling my clients, you know, I use the single best product on the market to determine this for you rather than sitting there and calculating it on Excel myself. I think it's it makes sense to use the best to identify and use the best third party providers. I'm struck by this framing of of kind of the advisor as curator. Yeah. Because I I feel like I feel like that's that's actually where our roots have been for most of the past at least 20 or 30 years already. You know, once upon a time we were curators of stocks through the 80s and 90s, we became curators of mutual funds, right? I, you know, I don't have to sell you my stock from the boiler room inventory. I will find for you a professionally managed, diversified portfolio and the right mutual fund manager to, to do it. You know, we, ironically, now I feel like are sort of in this strange world of, I will curate the best ETF for you, or ironically, like, uh, you know, there are lots of index funds. I'll curate the best index for you. We're, we've right. sort of playing that game for a little while, yeah. but- there's something actually to me very enduring about the advisor as curator, but but what we're curating is shifting because it was a lot of things around the best stock or the best mutual fund or the best ETF or the best index. Mm-hmm. And now it may be the best program that figures out what the right social security timing is for you or the, the best provider to help you with something. And just to just to jump in for a second, I mean it seems to me that it's a it's a logical evolution and it's also a positive one because you go in the scenario you just laid out the industry gradually would be moving from curating what i would argue are commodity products and services like the best mutual fund 20 years ago to the best etf 5 or 10 years ago and Let's not forget, if you're curating the best ETF, again, you're telling your clients, pay me, let's say, 75 to 100 basis points a year to find ETFs that charge you three basis points. And people aren't stupid. I mean, eventually, people are going to say, why do I have to pay you 30 or 40 times what I could be paying the the ETF provider? I can do that. Even if I don't do it as well as you, I might come out ahead anyway. But people can't independently assess the quality of an algorithm that calculates optimal social security timing. They can't independently assess which software is the best, you know, for like tax loss harvesting. That's just not something that the typical client has the either the ability or the inclination to to do. So I think that curatorial function is hugely important. And I mean, I, I do a, like a free weekly newsletter for the Wall Street Journal. And one week I wanted to leave out, you know, my favorite reading of the week. I, I mean, each week I pick like seven of my favorite articles 
inside the journal and seven of my favorites outside the journal. And my editor got very angry at me and he said, you can't do that to your readers because you are their curator and they expect you to curate their reading for them. And I immediately realized he was right because most of the email that I get is from people saying thank you for telling me I should read X, Y, or Z. Given all this context, I'm I'm struck that one of the things you know, we sort of we talked about a little bit early on it it hasn't really come up in this value of advisors discussion per se is I'm just going to broadly call it the behavioral stuff, right? The mm-hmm. ability of advisors, I guess, both in the portfolio context, the infamous. To, to keep our clients invested during bear markets and volatile times and perhaps also to limit their temptation to speculatively invest on the on the greed side of the the equation you you wrote a book on the, the neuroscience of of investing there's certainly been a lot of discussion in the industry over the past I think 10 years in particular as we try to protect the point and reinvent the value proposition of I play this, you know, behavioral coach role with my clients. Do you see that as a value component for advisors? Like, should that be part of the discussion? Does that get solved other ways by technology or regulation or otherwise? How do you see that intersection of advisors and the the behavioral advice or the behavioral coaching elements? I do think it's important. And I think a good advisor who takes behavioral coaching seriously can do, can do wonders. I have, I guess, a couple of qualms about it. One is, I think, and this is increasingly true for younger clients, I think that is not necessarily something that people are better at than machines. You know, I think if you are a betterment client, for example, I'm spinning a scenario as completely hypothetical, although I think Betterment does do something roughly like this. But if Betterment's computers wake up in the morning and notice that, you know, S&P futures are extremely volatile and are indicating a, you know, a huge decline on the open, they can send a, a text to all their clients and say, you know, you may see somewhat disturbing news coming out of the market today. We just want to offer you some historical reassurance. You know, this has happened 14 times in the past five years. And, you know, equity markets have gone on to to generate 17% returns over the following month after that. That's a lot easier for a machine to do than for a person. So the hand-holding proposition which so often is cited as like the single most important thing that advisors do for their clients. I think it is important, but I think it can be disintermediated and a lot more easily than many advisors seem to think. The second factor I would mention is that I think a lot of advisors need behavioral coaches of their own. There is some evidence in fund flows and other data, 
and it's pretty consistent over the years, that advisors themselves have a tendency to buy high and sell low, to chase performance, and to put too much money in assets when they're hot and take too much money out of them when they're not. So if you're going to make that claim that handholding is your most important value proposition, then you should also be looking in the mirror to make sure that when you hold hands with your clients, you're doing it counter-cyclically against the current of the market rather than doing it pro-cyclically and just exaggerating the behavioral swings that are already out there. It's not behavioral coaching if you're doing the same thing as your client and saying, it's okay because I'm here with you. You should be pushing back. You should be telling them what they don't want to hear. It strikes me, you know, we did a study about two years ago now on sort of like personality traits of advisors themselves. Uh, You know, there's some good research out there in the, in the realm of psychology of sort of the, the anchoring personality traits of human beings. And in general, the, the, one of the most popular models is called the big five extroversion and conscientiousness and uh, an openness to experience and agreeableness. And, and, and the last dimension of it is, is neuroticism, which, you know, gets used in a lot of different ways, but in, in the big five context, it's sort of people that are, are most inclined towards anxiousness Mm -hmm. or emotional instability, meaning they just, their emotions tend to move with whatever the environment is around them, good or bad. And, and strikingly, like one of the things that we found in, in the research is that the, the trait where financial advisors are least like the average person in the general population was not extroversion, which a lot of people seem to assume. We work with people and we have to go get clients. Extroversion was not significantly different. Agreeableness was only slightly different. Conscientiousness was only slightly different. The overwhelming, like the most dominant, unique personality trait of advisors over the general population was extremely low neuroticism. That in essence, we uh, sort of literally are the emotional anchors or the emotion buoys for clients and that and that advisors with higher neuroticism seem to be much more likely to not stay in the industry mm. can make cases mm-hmm. to whether that's it doesn't work and they and they don't succeed or just the emotional toll is too high because if you take on your clients feelings ad infinitum that will burn you out in mark, volatile markets as the advisor but we found this just huge difference that being able to be that emotional anchor for a more emotional client was like the distinguishing factor of advisors that seem to persist in the long run as advisors. Yeah, and that and that does make sense to me, much the same way that people in other, I guess I would call them interventional fields, tend to be quite calm and even keeled. I mean, I know a lot of surgeons, they tend to be very kind of emotionally low amplitude in some ways. And I think that that makes them good at handling crises. And, you know, firefighters can be like that as well. 
And I think that's a huge asset. And it's a trait that can be, of course, it can't really be taught, but it can be, it can be polished in people. And you can, you know, you can, through training, you can get people to be a little more of what they already are, which I think would be a good thing. I don't think any of that really changes the fact that in the data, we can observe that a lot of RIAs engage in performance-chasing behavior. And I think there's been an unfortunate tendency over the years in the industry for people to kind of hold themselves out as higher life forms, you know, almost like, you know, I'm Spock from Star Trek. And I'll always give you the perfectly rational, objective decision inputs and I'll never get carried away. But just think about Leg Mason Value Trust, you know, Bill Miller's famous mutual fund. Bill beat the market 15 years in a row, arguably one of the greatest track records in investing history. It was a load fund. You couldn't buy that fund unless you went through a broker or a financial advisor. And virtually all the money went into the fund as performance was peaking. And as it crested and collapsed, all the money went right back out. And that money was driven by advisors. So I don't know. I mean, the notion that individuals left to their own devices do crazy, stupid things that advisors never do, nah, I'm not so sure about that. Well, and it's always struck me as well that we get a strange colored image of this as advisors. You know, almost anyone who's been doing this for any period of time through market volatility, like has had that subset of calls from clients who really do get anxious about markets who are sort of neurotic around market volatility. They do pull the trigger at bad times. They do pile in on the greed. They do bail out like right at the troughs, right at the bottom. And, and ideally, hopefully we manage to talk some of them back off the, off the ledge. You know, it has always struck me though, that if that's your problem, you probably do blow yourself up in investing from time to time. And then eventually say, I'm really not good at this. It keeps going really badly. I think for myself or my financial future, or frankly, in some cases, like for the sake of my marriage, I'm going to find the financial advisor and let them do this for me. Mm -hmm. If you're really good at it, you don't call us. Yeah. Like we just don't, we just don't see them. We end, you know, we end out disproportionately seeing whatever that small segment of the population is that is most likely to blow themselves up, do it repeatedly, get to the point that they say, I need to, I need to give this up and, and hire an advisor. And so we get this view of, all investors tend to blow themselves up because our clients disproportionately blow themselves up. And I'm not sure that's true either. I, I don't know if that means at the end of the day, we've unwittingly created a niche for ourselves of, you know, we particularly draw on low neuroticism advisors who are good at being the emotional anchors for clients who are disproportionately high neuroticism and most likely to blow themselves up and go and find a financial advisor. And that's <laughs> like, that's our match made in heaven thing that we have ended out with. But there does seem to be this odd pairing that, you know, even and especially in some of the recent market volatility, I know last year, you know, Vanguard had a lot of data out that 
the bulk of their clients were not panic selling, mm -hmm. like truly the overwhelming bulk of their clients were not panic selling. Yep. A number of firms basically came out and said, not only was there more buying and selling, but the buying was primarily occurring amongst the youngest, least experienced investors who were the most comfortable with the market volatility that was going on. Betterman, I think, had put out some similar data. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us advisors, I think, still had the clients who were calling in a panic in the midst of the pandemic lows in March. But you know, is, is that just because of who we've ended up attracting with this investment-centric, AUM-centric model that a lot of us still run? Yeah, probably that is part of it. And some of it could be demographic too. I mean, I think clients 55 and older are just sort of by construction are probably more likely to panic in a downturn than clients in their 20s or 30s just because they they figure they might have less time to recover or they're just on the verge of being able to afford a comfortable retirement and they don't want to lose it. But I think there's another important thing to tease out here, Michael, which is that when people have an incentive to do something, they may not always recognize that they're not that good at doing it. And if you were paid on an AUM basis to be a registered investment advisor and a financial advisor, providing planning and other advice, you may think you're better at the investing part of the equation than you really are because that's what you're being paid to do. And you may be quite good at behaviorally coaching your clients not to chase performance, but that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily follow that you're good at monitoring your own tendency to chase performance because you're getting paid on the basis of assets. And that can really taint your judgment about whether your portfolio selection choices are actually good for your clients. So as, as we look at this ongoing evolution of advisors from portfolio managers, I guess if I really go back to sort of our roots as air quotes financial advisors, it was it was stock pickers and stock managers. And then we went to mutual fund pickers and ETF pickers and our curation of investments has evolved. Now we're maybe curating a wider range of of solutions for clients. And this is visor as curator model. You know, I, I am curious in how you view just financial advising and financial planning overall. Like, do you, do you consider advisors a, a profession? Do you, do you still think of advisors more in the sales context than the advice context? You know, I know you, we've got a view of ourselves because we live in it and with the pride of trying to talk about our value every day, but you know, as a journalist that covers the whole spectrum and the whole gamut, like how do you look and think about financial advisors and sort of this ever-present question of, of whether financial advising or financial planning is a profession linked unto itself? Well, let me, let me start by saying journalism isn't a profession. And I try to be very careful whenever I talk about journalism, not to imply that it is. Journalism is a field <laughs> or it's a way of earning a living. It is most emphatically not a profession. 
you don't need a particular degree. You don't need a particular course of study. There's no no licensing of any kind. There's no certification. In fact, there there literally is no qualification across the industry of journalism to be a journalist. Anybody, you don't need a college degree. You don't even need a high school <laughs> diploma. So someone can operate and act professionally, but you don't you don't frame journalism profession because of these journalism is simply is I know of no definition, no reasonable definition of profession that would enable journalism to think it is one. But I'm not sure about I think financial planning should be a profession. I think it can be a profession. I kind of doubt it is right now. There are too many competing vested interests, you know, trade associations, certification bodies, regulators, the incredible noise and confusion that surrounds the term financial advisor is just terrible. And form CRS that was put forward by the SEC. Oh my God, that wasn't last year. It was, I guess it was about a year and a half ago. I mean, the pandemic has made it impossible to remember when anything happened. 18 months slash 18 I think months. it was about yeah. 18 months ago. Form CRS, I'm expressing a personal opinion, I think is a, is a regulatory fiasco. I think it has added not just a, a layer of complexity and almost complete incomprehensibility to the relationship between advisors and their clients, but it's also created all kinds of opportunities for mischief for an entirely new source of confusion. And just pity the poor person who knows that she needs financial advice, but has no idea how to find it. And you know, this person gets a form CRS stuffed in her hand or is told to download it off a website, has to read this preposterous, cumbersome, junky document and make sense of it. And then, you know, I has to interview an advisor. It's just the only way advisors can reliably set themselves apart in this kind of marketplace is either with extreme competence or with aggressive marketing. That's a difficult dynamic for consumers. You know, there off and on over the years has been talk about like federal licensing for financial advice. And personally, I am inclined to think that might not be a bad idea, although it would be hard to get consensus on what the standards would be. But no, I, I don't think the field is a profession yet. So where where is the gap to you? Like, what do we need to get to that would you know, make, make you comfortable to write about financial planning as a profession when you're when you're talking about it in the journal? Where's that gap? What does it take? Well, a profession has to have universally accepted and enforceable standards of competence and ethics. And the basic reason journalism isn't a profession is because 
the competence of people in it varies all over the map. Frankly, you know, not everybody in journalism has the same, you know, standards of ethics as people who work at the Wall Street Journal or or the New York Times or other organizations I admire. And the financial planning industry would have to gather together and speak with one voice about competence and ethics. And I just don't think it's there yet. It's like herding cats right now. Now, I know you've been someone that's been, I was going to say outspoken against the CFP board. I I don't know if that's fair. Uh, You know, you, yeah, I mean, I would written and highlighted some issues and concerns and stumbling blocks of, yes, that's a CFP board in in particular in its role. Right. And I, I think it's important to emphasize, I try not to editorialize in what I write. Of course, I, I have opinions. Everyone has opinions, but I, I try just to be matter of fact in my reporting and, you know, anything I write about the CFP board or, or anyone else for that matter. So I, you know, I wouldn't characterize it as, you know, being critical or, or passing judgment, but certainly the, the factual pattern that my reporting has turned up over the years about the CFP board, you know, indicates that they still have some work to do. And I think they're, they are, to their credit, they have worked pretty hard on some of these issues and made some real progress. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see where they go in the next few years. But, you know, the report that the independent task force put out, and again, <laughs> my sense of time is shot. When was that? Two years ago? I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, I, it was about 14 months ago. They put that out at the very end of 2019. Right. I think it was in November or December. That's right. And, you know, uh, that report not only cited consistent, repeated issues about sort of the internal due diligence and enforcement process at the CFP board, but also, much to my surprise, pointed out how often those issues had been aired in in the press, in many cases in articles I had written. And to be honest, it hadn't occurred to me that that had really registered with people who might be overseeing the CFP board, but that was kind of heartening. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I hope that the issues we raised in that coverage over the years can serve as a kind of roadmap of the areas of concern that the organization, at least in my opinion, ought to consider addressing. And it sounds like from your perspective, you had framed up that uh, a profession has you know, universally accepted and enforced standards of competence and ethics that your concern is is maybe le- less around the competence and ethics per se, but the enforcement seems to be the particular, you know, like the particular theme to me that a lot of your coverage of CFP board is, has highlighted that they've got a standard, but whether it's really being enforced the way that it, it should be enforced to be a profession is is not clear. Well, and and let's be fair to the CFP board here. I mean, I think the organization very understandably has a bit of an identity crisis because on the one hand, I think the CFP board would 
sort of like to see itself in a regulatory or quasi-regulatory function. But on the other hand, it doesn't have the budget, the manpower, the experience and expertise to do that. I mean, FINRA is a multi-billion dollar organization. The SEC is, is effectively a branch of the United States government. You know, CFP board is just is a minnow alongside whales like that. And to move to a regulator or quasi-regulator status would be just a quantum leap. And, you know, if I were running the CFP board, on the one hand, I would say, wow, that would be great. We could be so much bigger and we could do so much more to serve the public good. On the other hand, that's really a daunting, intimidating, complicated and difficult transformation to make. And, you know, at some point they're going to have to make a decision, which is do we stay a certification body and stop sort of even pretending we have a regulatory function or should we like apply to the government, which I believe they would have to do for status as a, uh, you know, a self-regulatory organization. And a lot would have to change for that to happen. So, I mean, right now the industry is kind of in a regulatory, like no man's land, where jurisdiction isn't really clear depending on which hat you're wearing and which kind of transaction you're making. You could be subject to FINRA rules. You could be subject to SEC rules. The CFP board's fiduciary standard, you know, will apply. I think it's a real muddle for practitioners. And it's also yet another source of confusion for the public who not only don't understand this, but wouldn't if you explained it to them. Well, and to me, there's just, there's this interesting inflection point that CFP board, I, I think is, is going through as well. You know, the, in the roots of the CFP marks were very much, it was, it was this you know, voluntary designation to demonstrate a higher level of competency and standards. You know, the CFP board has talked long about being the gold standard. <laughs> their, their brand color is literally gold uh, or these very yellow gold-like color. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the more mainstream it goes, the less it becomes the gold standard and the more it becomes the standard. Yeah, And, and I think there is a point now where the CFP board seems to want to see themselves enshrined as the standard for financial planning. You know, if you are a financial planner, you are a certified financial planner. And I, I think it's a, a great direction to go. Personally, I'm, I'm very supportive of seeing the, the industry go that direction and part of what I think gets us to profession status. But, you know, it's no small shift when you go from being the gold standard to the standard, including what happens when you shift from being sort of a, in essence, something that's top tier to something that's mainstream. Right. As Charlie Munger would say, I have nothing to add. So as someone that just followed both the financial services industry broadly in the financial advisor world and in alongside of it, what surprised you the most about the evolution of the advice business over the 30 odd years that you've been following and covering it? Well, isn't that an interesting question? Because I'm not sure 
I guess it's the first time it's occurred to me that most of the answers people give when they get that kind of question must be wrong. <laughs> because I think we can only construct that in hindsight. You know, 30 years later, it's kind of impossible to reconstruct your former state of mind because it's all overwritten by everything that's happened since. I mean, I guess I was about to say what surprised me the most is that AUM fees have not come down more than they have. But I think that's uh, that's colored by hindsight bias. Because you weren't necessarily talking about AUM fee compression. No. 30 years ago, it was just like, oh, this is awesome. Mutual fund commissions have come down from 8% loads to 5.5% loads by the 1990s. This is amazing. Yes, exactly. It's interesting. I think it never occurred to me before. It, it, we all ask that question in, in like every interview we do with anybody. And I, and I just realized this, the question is kind of a fallacy. But let me try, let me try to answer it anyway. I guess what surprises me the most is that more consumers have not sought finan the financial advice they need. I think that's, the, that's actually a good answer to your question. And I can only think that that is the industry's fault for some of the reasons we mentioned earlier and also for too often taking the easy way out. And this is not so much a problem in the independent RIA world, but it certainly is in the traditional world of what used to be called wirehouses. I mean, when the DOL proposed the fiduciary rule a few years ago, you know, all the big firms protested that this would, you know, drive small investors out of seeking advice. And that's got to be the most hypocritical, phony argument in an industry that specializes in them. I mean, the brokerage industry really outdid itself with that because, of course, at the same time as they were protesting that, you know, oh, middle class people won't be able to get financial advice, they were telling all their all their brokers to jettison all their small accounts. <laughs> and nobody with less than $250,000, you know, could even walk in the door. The industry deserves a lot of blame for the fact that households with what statistically are sizable assets can't get advice, don't seek financial advice, don't don't know they should get financial advice. I think that's what surprises me the most. And that's just a function of because too many firms literally won't take the average investor or because we've just positioned financial advice to only be for the wealthy? Like where's where's the actual gap? Well, I, I mean – I think it's reason, you know, 249 to have a dislike of AUM fees. I mean, I don't want I don't want to take a $100,000 account. 1% on that is chicken feed. So what if down the road that's going to be a million dollar account? It's chicken feed now. And it, you know, it it encourages a, a like a sales oriented mentality among people who tell themselves they are fee only. Because just literally, if you're going to, you know, notwithstanding the other criticisms around AUM fees and whether the advice is aligned enough or not, if you 
if you predominantly operate on the AUM fee model, you just literally can only work with people who have A to the M, which is only a fairly limited percentage of the total population. Yeah, I mean, a, a point on a million dollars, now you're talking. A point on a hundred thousand dollars, I don't, I don't care. And that's a shame. That's bad for for the public and it's bad for the industry. So what advice would you give to younger or newer advisors looking to become a financial planner and start a firm today? Well, I guess the first advice I would give them is the advice I give everybody who's young and bright and ambitious, which is associate with people who are better than you are. You know, that's one of the central messages you'll hear from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. I think it's really powerful. You want to have wise, admirable, ethical mentors and learn from them as much and as closely as you can. You should read really broadly, not just in finance, but in all other fields because you're going to have clients from all walks of life and reading widely will make you a wiser and better person and a better advisor. Practice saying, I don't know, as we talked about earlier, just learn as much as possible when you're young. You know, when I was a a young reporter starting out, I would, this was back when I was at Forbes magazine in the 1980s, you know, I would I would turn the lights on in the morning and I would turn them off at night. I mean, I was the first person there and I was the last to leave. And I read the Wall Street Journal from the you know first article on the front page all the way to the last article on the last page. And every time I read an article in the journal or anywhere else where somebody said something and was quoted saying something that I thought was insightful, I would grab my red pen and circle the person's name. And of course, in those days, there <laughs> there was no internet or email, but I would find the person, call them, ask them out to lunch. The hard work is really important. But the other thing is, and I think this, you, you have to be old like me to appreciate this with the benefit of the passage of years, but a lot of luck is the result of hard work. The more people you know and the more you vary your routine, the more likely you are to create serendipity in your work and your personal life. And and those happy accidents that come out of serendipity, the conversation you had in like the lounge at the airport with a stranger just because the person was wearing an interesting scarf. Amazing things can come out of those happy accidents of the people you meet and the things you learn. And embracing that power of serendipity is really important when you're young and starting out. I love that. I love that. So there is a wonderful story about this, Michael. Many years ago, when I was at Money Magazine, I wrote an article about the power of luck and I interviewed a British psychologist named Richard Wiseman, who had just written quite a nice book about luck. It wasn't maybe quite as scientifically rigorous as 
it wasn't ideally scientifically rigorous, but it was it was well done and very interesting. And he had done a massive public survey on what it means for people to think of themselves as lucky. And so one of the people, and I'm, I'm misremembering the details, but it went something like this. One of the people who filled out the survey, I believe her husband had died not long before, and something terribly tragic had happened to one of her children. But she filled out the form, and there was a question, do you consider yourself lucky? And I think it was like a 1, one to 10% scale or 1 to 10 scale. And she circled 10, extremely lucky. And so he was so puzzled by this that he asked her, you know, your husband recently died and this terrible thing has happened to your son. How can you consider yourself lucky? And she said, you know, a while after my husband died, I decided I had to get outside myself and, you know, try to rebuild a social life. And so I came up with a simple rule, which was um, before I go into a room full of people, I close my eyes and I think of a color. And then I open my eyes and I walk up to the first person in that room who's wearing that color. And she paused and looked at him and smiled. And then she said, so I always have a date on Saturday night. And I just love that story because that's somebody who knew how to harness the power of serendipity. And even though she'd had these terrible tragedies in her life, it not only made her feel lucky, she actually had good fortune because she made it for herself. I love that. I love that. As we wrap up, this is a podcast around success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, I know you've had a, a, an incredibly successful career as a financial journalist, a, a lot of very well-deserved awards and recognition and, and you know, fantastic books that you've written. But I'm curious, how do you define success for yourself? Well, of course, like everybody, I would break it into personal and, and work-related but I guess you're I guess you're asking me about the work-related aspect of it. I think it's just trying to be honest with myself about what I'm trying to do and whether I've achieved it. And I once sort of jokingly at some industry conference, somebody asked me, How do you define a fiduciary? And I said, a fiduciary is Fiduciaries are people who are willing to learn things about themselves that they would rather not know. Hmm. And the audience went dead silent. <laughs> so I don't know whether people liked it or hated it. But I think success for me is at least trying to be honest about whether I've done my work well. And that's very hard. And I'm not pretending that it's easy or that when I make those judgments, they're correct. Because of course, I'm lying to myself. That's a large part of what it means to be a human being. But I hope I lie to myself less than I did when I was young. And I hope I lie to myself less than 
a lot of other people who do what I do. And I think what's important about that is that you attempt it, not whether you succeed, because first of all, you would, you, there's no way of knowing if you succeeded because only a higher power could really determine whether you've been honest with yourself. There's no internal objectivity for that because we're all biased. But I think at least trying to do it is really important. And it amazes me how many people don't seem to do that because it's uncomfortable. You know, I try not to have a lot of sunk costs in my work. If I've done something and my editor or someone else who reads it doesn't think it's good, then what I try to do is tear it up and start over. And of course, I do a different kind of work than a lot of advisors. I'm not saying that if your client doesn't like the financial plan, you should completely revise it from scratch every single time, because that probably isn't a very good idea. But being able to let go of what you've done because you don't think it was good enough in the attempt to make it a lot better, I think is really important. And on the occasions when I'm able to do that, that's when I do feel that I succeeded. I love that vision and framing. It's to me, it's, it's a, it's a path of, of self-improvement of continuous improvement with, with sort of the asterisk that you, you can't actually improve and get better until you can be honest with yourself that you're not as good at something in the first place. One of the ways I like to put this, and again, this is, although I say this about my writing, that's just because I am a writer and that's what I do for a living, but I don't know why it wouldn't apply to other kinds of, of work. But the best feeling that I can have about something I've written is when I say this about it. I don't know if it's any good, but I'm very sure at this point that I can't make it any better. Mm. That's a really good feeling. And when I have that feeling, very often that's when other people will say, oh, that was good. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My pleasure, Michael. We talked about a bunch of things I thought we would and a bunch of things I didn't realize we would. Never quite know where a conversation's going to go. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.